0: Welcome everyone to another episode of Behind the Human. This is your host, Mark Champagne, and it is my job to unpack the stories and mental fitness practices of people living at the top of their game personally and professionally. Today we have Joe Jacoby on the show. He is an Olympic gold medalist, performance coach, and author who guides high-performance leaders to ignite their second wind to confront challenging midlife transitions with meaning and adventure. I don't care what what journey or what part of your life you're on. Who doesn't want meaning and adventure in their life? So, Joe, welcome to the show. Mark, oh, so looking forward to doing this. Thank you for having me today. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, we when did we meet? Last year with Mr. Scott McGregor and the Outlier Project? I,
1: I don't remember which month it was, but yeah, it would have been in 2022.
0: Yeah, and it's... Uh, I just... You know, I I owe you a big thank you. I said this before we we started recording, but ever since we met through that group, it's just been a beautiful experience. Uh, a experiencing your content in your writing, and and you know, I guess being allowed into your mind in in a, in a certain way through your words and your 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 philosophies and your mindsets and whatnot, and just I feel like you're just one of those really great authentic humans that shares and 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 isn't just leaving a comment to leave a comment. Like there's meaning behind it. And there's been, you know, I think maybe two, it depends on when you listen to this, but a, a few episodes back, even uh, Dr. Jo- uh, Jack Grapples mm. is directly uh, 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 was directly on the show because of you from a one of those beautiful, authentic comments. So, Joe, thank you. Well, thank
1: you. And what's interesting about that, Mark, is that You know, it's not just that your body of work is this podcast and these wonderful conversations. For me, I very much associate it with having read Personal Socrates and the way the work you put into that book and the way the perspective that you took. I I couldn't stop reading it, I couldn't put it down. So I think that's one of the neat things about combining a writing uh, habit, a writing practice with also. A speaking, a voice practice as well. sure. And I also think one other thing that's really nice, I don't know if you ever thought about this when you started the podcast, but if you do, what's nice about when someone has a, a voice that you get used to listening to, and for everyone who's listening, please know, like I am a every episode listener of this podcast. <laughs> so I know your voice well, but one of the benefits of doing this is that when you write something like a book, it is as if I'm hearing you read the book to me. And I oh, think I that, love it. that is a nice thing that we don't think about often about combining podcast voice with writing is that, you know, you kind of wonder like, yeah, what does that person really sound like? But when they actually have a podcast, it brings that together. I like that.
0: Oh, uh, well, thank you. Thank you. And, uh, you're too kind. The heart feels full right now. I, I appreciate that. Uh, I definitely know, we're going to get into a lot. I mean, just knowing a bit of your backstory and, and whatnot, and especially when it comes to journaling and, and questions and reflection and all of that. But before we get into all of that uh, juicy insight and rituals and whatnot, you know this is coming as mm-hmm. a long-time listener. Who are you, Joe? Yeah, the big pressure question. <laughs> Gosh, Mark simply said, "I am.
1: Um, I'm just living an excellent adventure. I am doing it simply, slowly, and with less, kind of three of my big words. Um, I am focusing on pursuing what I call states of lightly, holding it lightly, mm. wearing it lightly, traveling lightly. And I think that kind of comes from that sense of letting go. Um I would also say that I am a student of and a voice for water. <laughs> um, sure. I consider the river to be my greatest life coach. I am now uh, taking up a coaching practice in the sea. I'm letting the sea uh, start to coach me more. And um, I think a lot of times with this question, it's it's easy to sort of think about like how we sort of see ourselves in our best form. And I so I would actually um, – Tell you maybe two, they're good things, but things that I'm also working on as well that are sort of behind who I am. And that is um, trying to just be better at choosing to be open versus choosing to be right, choosing to be correct. And embracing insignificance, like I think that's a big part of spending a lot of time in nature and trying to do hard things and challenging things and just not getting too too caught up in like where this is all going and what it all means but like this is a fairly like it sounds a little bit like um the the spirit of you know four thousand weeks that book by Oliver Berkman, but. I think embracing that significance, insignificance, has like been so wonderful and opening up so much freedom as well. So yeah. that's kind of my little overview of who I am.
0: <laughs> but it it seems like that all kind of wraps back into what you 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 said originally around just adventure mm. and and also helping people find that that sense of adventure in, in their lives. Again, you know, I think that it doesn't matter what phase of life, but I do want to ask you because I. You've probably seen this, or I've noticed this, and and I kind of feel like I've w- gone down this track at, at one point as well. There's like we 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 come to this world in an adventure, in a way you could say, mm-hmm. and there's a, especially having two young boys right now. Like I I see that sense of adventure every single day, almost every minute of the day. But for a lot of us, that that's that adventure somehow gets. Taken from us in some sort of capacity. Sometimes through a work environment, or we're put onto that again, that autopilot. Like I have to do this, I have to do that, and so forth. So I'm curious with your life. I mean, just knowing that you know you you were an Olympic athlete and and you were doing that from uh, from a young age. Yes, like when. Did it ever stop for you, Joe or did did you have to reignite that in some capacity like so, where where does all that come from
1: so you know it's it's really funny i i I really do like my mantra, you know this idea of you know that ends with meaning and adventure. What I would say is that adventure is also a little bit code for just time and nature mm. and you know I wrote about this in my book, Slalom, that I think there for many people, I would just say sort of for me, I think nature kind of emerged initially as this place we go to unwind and it's like this one-way relationship where I can just let go and be. And I think the evolution of that relationship and then, and I, the way I'm trying to answer this question is that I think in the most simplest, most basic way, I think nature can become a, a two-way relationship Um, It, you give you serve it, it serves you very much like any other kind of relationship that you're in. And that means that a lot of what I'm advocating for is that it doesn't have to be doing some incredibly hard thing or even going to Yosemite. uh, But it can literally be going through a small walk in a city park, or noticing some flowers, or you know, in a on a just to the side of a sidewalk, or the way a leaf kind of hits the ground, I think it's really embracing those small things that help you to um, just see things a little bit differently. And uh, that's really, I think, what is I didn't may have not known or quite embraced when I was say in my twenties or thirties. It was yeah. all about the adventure but it's also interesting because as i said goals for myself now that are still often nature based like for example maria my girlfriend and i like we love to see beautiful see beautiful scenes from the kayak like out in the sea or on the river and but if we think about who needs to show up like what versions of joe and maria need to show up to do that We've got to take care of ourselves in a certain way if we'd like to be able to do that for a while, you know, it's like, you know, we, we have to be sort of um, mindful of not just the things to do, but. The, the crap, the junk that gets in the yeah. way that distracts us, that obstructs us from doing those things. And those are, you know, I think that's kind of how I sort of come back to answer that question. Like adventure is a little bit code for nature. And I think the more that we can sort of distill that relationship into the most simple things, it's like, we keep that chain connected and it and it goes on and we set ourselves up to do more adventurous things when those opportunities come up. We take care of ourselves in a way. And I know this will sound funny to you, but last year, last spring, at the end of the year, Maria and I decided to try snowboarding together. And I know about your snowboarding habit from having read a little bit about it in your book. And, you know, it was great. Like we weren't good at it, but, it, <laughs> yeah. you know, and it, I don't want to say like we were doing it based on like other people, but I certainly didn't notice anyone else our age, like learning to snowboard out there.
0: Totally. But
1: I think it, I'm really glad, like for the way that we think about the way we take care of ourselves and our health and not just like physically, but in body, mind and spirit that kind of allows, it gives us a better chance of showing up to do those activities and be available to those adventures.
0: Well, yeah, that I was just going to say like, that's the thing is like, we take care of ourselves and we keep moving and we, we do whatever we can to be healthy. And, and I, I, I include, you know, staying curious and asking questions from the, from the mental side of things, then it, to your point, I mean, we can continue the adventure, you know, I, I can't think of like, I can't imagine a world, at least for myself, that the day I stop asking questions is like, I'm, I'm six feet underground at this point. But same thing with like, if I can't move anymore, um, like it, everything just stops, right? So the long, the longer you can, I think, hang on to that and and be a realistic to with wherever you're at now, and and set that path to what you and and Maria are doing. Like set that goal of, hey, I want to be in the middle of a river or lake on a kayak to <laughs> see this scene. Uh, well. What I'm doing today is either supporting that mission or pushing me farther away from it. I I love that. I I, I love that.
1: I I will say, you know, I will say that it is interesting, and I I would be interesting to sort of dig into something that you just said, because I certainly want to keep moving and being available to move to the best of my ability. But I will say, and this kind of gets into why I'm passionate about this area of midlife and midlife transitions, I'm not necessarily trying to put myself in the position to run marathons and do, you know, huge trail running things in my eighties and nineties. But what I have done is to really think about what physicality and movement could look like in my nineties. Like what would really make me happy? Like, is it being able to get down on the floor to play with grandkids? Is it being able to like, build a fire in the fireplace, you know, you know, for us to help keep us warm, like that would be like magical. But then you can sort of backtrack from that, like, okay, if I want to do that in my 90s, what do the 80s look like? And what do the 70s look like? And you know, and you start to kind of think through that in a more pragmatic way. And yeah, I think, but I do get excited that like, I I know that there is a window on really getting far out into the sea, and you know maybe one day seeing a whale like out in yeah. the water like that. You're still waiting be... for that one. <laughs> We've seen dolphins, and it was magical. <laughs> Everything that we see, gosh, I can't tell you what it is about the sea, but uh, you know, for year... here's how I say this. For years, I was paddling rivers, beautiful rivers, and photographers would share these wonderful pictures with me. And afterwards, I'd like look at the pictures, and I'm like, "Wow, that's where I was paddling," and I would notice it through the photos afterwards. With mm. the sea, um, you know, we have a surf ski coach, and he takes some beautiful pictures. But the thing is, is that every time we're out there on the sea, it's like we know it while we're there. Like we know, you know, we're a few kilometers offshore. And we have found this special place where the waves just have a unique shape and a beautiful color. And oh my gosh, like, you know, you're just so aware of it in the moment. I don't know what it is, whether it's about the stage of life or it's sort of the change from a river to the sea. But um, I do think there is a bit of a window for that. But this does come back to nature. If I can teach myself now in my 50s, the beauty of a a fallen leaf on a sidewalk I, I do think that that kind of bodes well for the '90s as well, if I can get there.
0: Yeah, for, well, for sure. But I think that the the big thing, like what I'm hearing, and this is where, you know, most people aren't asking these questions is, the, is sitting down and ta- and taking the time to think about, you know, as as we age and 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 as we get to these places where it's like, hey, well, this is important to me. This is no longer important, and it's like these. I, I know you follow Chip Conley's work uh, quite a bit as well. Like, yes. And you know he's been on the show a few times now, and what I've constantly learned from Chip is just this idea of a life edit and just going in and and taking a pause and and asking the questions, right? And even for myself, um uh, this was two years ago as I had a big or last year actually, I had a big mountain biking trip lined up out in the the Rocky Mountains in Canada and in Revelstoke. And I was training for this. I mean, this is what wasn't like a competitive thing. It's just a group of guys that we we get together every year and do some sort of trip. And it, something clicked there for me where I was like, you know what? I enjoy running, but th- something always happens. Like it bothers a knee or something like that. And I'm like, what? Like, do I? What matters most to me? What matters most to me right now is that I can uh, mountain bike comfortably and at at a at a pace that that you know excites me and i feel like i'm keeping up with the group and whatnot and i can do the same thing snowboarding so everything else sure, dabble in it a little bit but the focus are, are is put on these two sports and like for whatever like that just kind of clicked recently and i'm like you, you don't have to do everything you know
1: i i like that you know and and what's and i think when you actually what is interesting when you choose two sports and you really think about what it means to prepare your body and mind to do that you will be surprised like how when an opportunity for example comes up hey mark you want to try surfing like yeah. you you because of the way that you've pursued deeply one or two sports, your ability to maybe have a better disposition for like what I call beginner success goes dramatically up. And you can use some of those same skills that you um, use when you're repeating the basics and fundamentals of snowboarding, but you get better at transferring those. And I, I've been doing that with the river for a long time, but I think that there's, you know, body and mind, you know, preparation elements that also help those things. But just from learning the actual skill, the movement, when I sort of think about how I learn to kind of let go of my own power to give in to the power of the river, huh? Is that something that I could, What what does that look like when I snowboard or when I try yeah. snowboarding? And that works really well. And I think that's yeah. actually the advocacy for, really digging into one or two different kinds of sports. Interestingly, running is a base sport for me. Running, I kind of like, the way I describe it, you'll laugh at this. I like to have a sport where I can zone out. If I want to think about it and deeply tune in, I can. But I can also tune out and think like, oh, what do I want to have for breakfast this morning? In whitewater canoeing, you can't do that. (laughs) Like You know, you'll lose your teeth. And yeah. so I like to have like that variety of two sports that I can really dig into that allow me to do that. And, um, you know, running has pleasantly surprised me over the last, you know, 15 ish years. I never would have thought that would be one of my kind of baseline sports and um but it's been a beautiful way to sort of see my surroundings here in the pyrenees and oh for sure and uh not only embrace nature but it really em- embrace the the whole catalan uh community
0: yeah let's let's rewind a little bit cuz i i definitely want to talk about your your long standing partner the river uh and how that all began and just if you remember if there was a moment when you first sat in a (laughs) kayak or canoe where you're like, I'm going to spend a lot of time in one Mm. of these things. (laughs) Uh,
1: Interestingly, it it, it wasn't that. It wasn't like a love at first sight kind of thing. It was intriguing. What I would say is that, um, you know, when I was young, so this would have been like the mid-1970s, around 1976, 1977, um, My mom was a part of a community theater group in the Washington DC area. And she worked, the director of all the plays there was a guy named Roger McEwen who owned a summer camp. And Roger had a son, Jamie, who won America's first ever Olympic medal in Whitewater Canoe Salt at the 1972 Olympics in Munich. So this was only five or five years after that. And this was the McEwen family summer camp. When I was young, there were lots of summer camps that had open canoeing as an activity, but none that had enclosed kayaks. And back then, the McEwen family, they made all of their kayaks out of fiberglass. So you got all these fiberglass burns on your skin. Mark, they were terrible. (laughs) They were really uncomfortable. Today, they're made of plastic, and they're super comfortable, and they're really easy for kids to paddle. But what happened was, is that at age 10, a few years later, I was the first person in my group to learn the Eskimo roll, where you turn over in the kayak and then you come mm. back up. And it's really funny what happens with kids when they're ten years old. I like—I was not an athletic guy. I was pretty overweight, and I loved sports. So I just wasn't very good, so I was never the first at anything. And now you're the first at something, and like that feels pretty good. And it's yeah. like—and people are kind of making a big deal about this. Oh, you can do the the roll in the kayak. That really kind of got me going and saying, oh, I could really do something. And there was like a bulletin board at the lake that showed all the little advancement certifications. And, and I'm like, all right, let's go. Let's start doing this. And that that's it. And I was very lucky to grow up at that summer camp. It was very connected to the high-performance paddling community on the Potomac River in Washington, D.C., where the legendary coach of our sport live or all the world champions were living and training. It was one of the greatest training environments in the history of our sports in terms of, you know, winning medals. You know, they were all world champions and world medalists. And uh, I mean, to me, they were just like regular people who put their, you know, pants on one leg at a time, but they were the best at what they did in the world. And, um, yeah, that's who like I got to know when I was 12, 13 years
0: old. Hello, friends. Given you're here, I'm making the assumption that you're motivated to be mentally fit. So with that in mind, I want to let you know about the Better Questions newsletter, which publishes once or twice a month, providing all of us the opportunity to slow down, think and ask better questions. As you know, quality questions are my thing. And this is an opportunity to share the prompts I've studied and curated to help our minds be healthier, clearer, more intentional and expand our mental capacity. You can sign up over at behindthehuman.com slash newsletter, which will also give you a preview of my debut book, Personal Socrates. That's behindthehuman.com slash newsletter. Now back to the show. So then, when did maybe it was in that moment? Because there's there's one thing to realize, like, oh wow, I'm I'm seems like I'm good at something, and I did something, you know, I landed first in this, and and like you said, you got that. Since you got that dopamine hit, right? Of like, oh, this feels this feels nice, um, and then you started down that path. But then there's, you know, I and I imagine this is a whole journey, of course. But from that to winning a gold medal, <laughs> I'm sure there were a few moments there where uh, you needed more than, uh, oh yeah, I want to be the best at this. You know, why don't you share a little bit about the, your your story and and that journey to, you know, earning a, a medal that a lot of people strive to earn and and never get that opportunity.
1: Well, I got it. I mean, the standard of training that, uh, in, on the Potomac river with the athletes that I was working with was amazing. And, and again, there were, what would happen is there were a lot of paddlers from around the United States and from around the world who would come to train there. And I didn't have to go anywhere. They were all coming to me. And, um, Everyone was really excited. And part of what made our training environment so great was that it was open. Like our our legendary coach, Bill Endicott, any of the athletes from Europe could fly over and train. There were no closed doors. Like we shared everything okay. and in the spirit of improvement. That made A really big difference on me so what happened was was the united states was particularly good in one category especially good in one category it was the singles canoe category and that was what i was doing and when i was i had made the junior team when i was 16 years old and then the coach pulled me aside and he said look and he says "I've, i've had this talk with a few athletes before you're really good at what you're doing but you know only four boats are going to make the U S team and you're at best, you know, you might be eighth, ninth or 10th, you know, if you race at the senior level, but, if you were to pair up with one of the other guys and paddle the doubles canoe, you will make the senior team as a senior in high school, you will go to a world championships, feel what it's like to be a part of this team and start to get that experience. And I'm like, I'm mm. in, let's do it. And so yeah. I paired up with Scott Strasbaugh, who was another one of those canoeing athletes. And we went to that first world championships in 1987. We we went over to the French Alps in bourg la maurice uh, when I just graduated high school we lived there for five weeks getting ready for the worlds and oh my gosh it was just such an amazing experience and the u.s team did so well we paddled well and we just sort of took it year to year for a while because you know we were like 17th at our first world championships so we decided like hey that was fun let's do it again in the next year and we actually want, started to win world cup medals in our second year of paddling together like I was 18 years old and we were standing on podiums by 1989, we were having the world championships in the United States. We were fifth at that world's what we won our first world cup race in Minden, Ontario a week later. Oh, wow. Yeah, that, that was, it that was such an experience. And then we're like, okay, we're sort of in on this ride. The one interesting story that I'll share as part of the journey that I thought was interesting was the the decision we made to leave the Potomac river and you, you know, cause most people would be thinking, okay, like, like, that's like leaving the Chicago bulls in the middle of a three like who would do that? Yeah. You know? So one of the things that was interesting was that there our, our training group in the DC area. was, was aging, it was getting older. And also, um, it was a very hard driving training group and it was, really hard on my canoe partner, Scott, you know, who was a, he was a master technician in our sport, Mark. He was small, he was light, but in our sport, it's not about your strength. It's about your ability to pull in the strength of the river. And Mm. my partner was amazing at that. One of the best that our sport has ever seen. But that also meant the hard driving environment, like really took a toll on his body. And during an injury, during a time in which he was injured, I made a I traveled with one of our coaches down to the southeastern U.S., to Appalachia, to the Nantahala Outdoor Center in Western North Carolina and Atlanta. And, you know, this was like late 1989. Atlanta was, you know, hoping to host the 96 Olympic Games at this point. There was a lot of enthusiasm. And I came back from that trip and I said, I think this is the place for us to be. And I went over to Scott's house and I said, um, I think we should move down to the Nanny Hill Outdoor Center. And he was just already packing his bag. Like he couldn't get okay. out of there quickly enough. So I just to tell you how differently this is in the nation's capital, the United States and an awesome river flowing through the nation's capital. The Nana Hill Outdoor Center is in the middle of nowhere, literally the middle of nowhere. And it's like, there's no pressure. The cost of living mm-hmm. is really cheap. Um, you really, there were no timetables, no time schedules. You had, you could really take your time with your training. But most of all, we sort of built a training center from scratch down there. We weren't riding on an established training center. We were starting something new at the Nanahala Outdoor Center. And I think that ultimately being successful at the Olympic games, I know for what, my part in it was as part of our two person collaboration it was both it was like being a part of that chicago bulls kind of 3p high performance championship mindset and literally like it's like having an expansion franchise and like starting up but building it into a championship team in 3 years yeah
0: yeah what like during those big moments, those, like the big move before you had a chat with your your partner like do you you already had somewhat of a, a journaling practice at that point, right i believe like how, how how do you how do you and maybe even today like how do you process these kind of decisions
1: yeah, so I remember going to my first workout with the u s team in the summer of nineteen eighty two I was 12 years yeah. old. The coach had invited me and another person from the summer camp. We were so far out of our league. We had no idea what was going on. We were blown away by the star power that was on the river that day. But they were all excited that two kids were coming out to paddle with the group. Like they, That doesn't happen very often. Sure. And I remember one of them, Davey Hearn, was a world champion. He said, he just came over and he introduced himself as a world champion, introducing himself. It was like still blows my mind. And um, he asked us if we were keeping a training log. We're like, what's a training log? And he's like, oh, it's the notebook and where you record all your workout." And then five minutes later, the legendary coach, Bill Endicott, asked us the same question and when my mom picked us up from the river i'm like oh, we need to go to the drugstore we need to get notebooks you know we have to keep training logs now <laughs> you
0: know yeah yeah yeah
1: and that's literally how it started and bill had written these books about canoeing and he actually mapped out you know a sort of a structure for keeping a training log and all to, and like i think you know this you you have followed and know more about different journaling practices than probably anyone that i know mark and i think the idea is is that You know, we don't advocate for anyone to choose one. Just start with one so you can make it your own. Sure. And that's what I did. And I ultimately, you know, started to prompt myself with certain questions in my training log. And I did, I recorded every single workout in writing all the way from the time I was 12 up and through the day that we won the gold medal here in La Sele d'Orge, where I live now. And, like, I remember just after the games, like, going back to my room in the village, crashing on the bed for a minute because you had to be out and doing things after that. But opening – just then sitting back up on the bed, opening the side door, side drawer, pulling out the training log, and writing an entry in there like it was another day. And, wow. yeah, you know, you write, like, mission accomplished, you know, got – you know, th- that kind of, you know, entry – but i just really remember more the feeling of just it was the most probably normal thing that i felt that day uh, certainly the most normal thing i felt after winning the olympics was just going back to the village and writing in my journal that day
0: how powerful is that yeah. so i mean i have to ask a little bit more and and i'm glad you 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 set that up uh, earlier that it's you know our goal here in the, in this in this conversation or sharing practices and 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 routines and rituals and whatnot isn't to provide a prescription, but more so, uh, you know, inspiration or ideas, I guess you could say. I'm like, oh, interesting. You know, I I hadn't thought about, you know, setting up a a training log like that. So, you know, if you you would, what did that look like for you when you first started? And how has that evolved now into just regular life and your your work and and whatnot?
1: So bill Endicott, the co- the legendary coach i mentioned a, f- a few times in the conversation bill is a super pragmatic analytical guy so a lot of his guide was like what's your body rate what's your heart rate you know what did you do yeah. how many sets how many minutes and like it became even it. 12 13 years old it became a little bit apparent like there were some things that were missing like you know how do you feel like yeah. you know why you, like those kind of things and so um i think it sort of took you know doing it for a while and but i love that like that kind of occurred to me at a young age like that was kind of missing and i'll mm-hmm. tell you where i remember where i think this really ramped up and that was shifting from paddling a singles boat to paddling with a do- uh, in a doubles boat with another person because now you really do have to write about the relationship with the other person a lot. Oh, okay, and um, and we had a hard one. Like I, the relationship with Scott, the way I always describe Scott and it, what made us different is what made us great. By the way, we weren't one hundred and eighty degrees different from each other, but we were <laughs> pretty close. About one hundred and seventy nine. <laughs> And I say that had we been 175, like, I don't think we we would have won the Olympics. And so, and it wasn't that we were so different. We were different, but where journaling about our differences became really important, Mark, was as the pressure started to go up. Like, you know, again, we were, we started to win medals in our second year of paddling together. And the sport had not officially been added to the 1992 Olympic program at that point. Mm. Now the sport, you know, in late 1989, the sport gets added to the program officially. We're now winning medals. We're kind of top five, top six in the world. We could do good with three years of training, but that also, that sounds great. But then where the rubber meets the road, there's a lot of pressure and you have young people who are really different from each other, you know, trying to figure this all out. And like, the journaling part that's where i really it really kind of occurred to me that there y- y- it's not going to do any good to have a journal where you just write out statistics and and metrics and you know you got to get into the feeling of what's happening here the you know what's working what's not working and you know it's so interesting to start doing that in your late teenage years while you're kind of attaining like olympic podium success
0: yeah you're at the top yeah, yeah so what what did the practice like how did the practice help there came a moment in our in our
1: partnership well the way i like to explain the way i explain it to my coaching clients like this comes up in coaching calls a, a lot you know working with teams and diverse teams by the way di- diversity in teams means something i think different in 2023 and i'm glad it sure. does than it did in the late 1980s and early 1990s scott and i were both Two white guys that had privilege and had an opportunity, you know, the resources to do this sport. Scott, when we started paddling together, he had already graduated college. I had not graduated high school. That's a big maturity gap. Scott was Mm. intensely introverted, analytical. I was intensely extroverted and optimistic. We're just very different, and so especially as we started to get good and the Olympics were getting closer, we have roles, roles and responsibilities in the in the doubles canoe. The front guy, the guy in front, which is Scott's position, he does certain things, and mm-hmm. me in the back, I do certain things. And Scott and I were sort of an oddly lightweight, just, you know, sh- size shaped team. A lot of our competitors were much bigger and stronger than we were. So we sort of had to reinvent a lot of ways about how the double's boat was paddled. And I kind of had these ideas, but I started having the kind of a bit of an identity crisis, you know, maybe a year and a half before the Olympics or so that like i'm too much the follower being in the back of the boat i'm not enough of a leader like you know I, I, i feel like a little bit like the tim robbins character in bull durham like i want to announce my presence with authority you know and it's you just can't do that from the back of the boat and when you start to paddle from the back of the canoe like you're the front person you know what it does to the front person it makes them want to shut down and I, I was trampling over his space. And he's like, no, not doing this, you know. And it led to some really tense moments. Ultimately, the head of sports psychology, Shane Murphy, head of sports psychology from the U.S. Olympic Committee, uh, comes in to work with us, you know. and uh, and But he didn't do any of this, oh, like, you're an introvert, you're an extrovert, we need to do this. None of that. All he did, Mark, was focus on what I call conditions and environment. Okay, We have to set a space for you guys to come into and put it all on the table and talk. And we got to choose the right time of day to do this. Choose the right moment. You have to prepare yourself not only to speak honestly and transparently, but you also got to prepare yourself to listen to things that may not be so pleasant to hear. But if we can sort of check those bags at the door, come into the space, have those conversations and then go back out in the world and take back the roles and responsibilities that we have agreed to, to be a part of this boat, we, we can do this, we can make this work. And so and Shane oversaw that initially and then he taught us how to do that on our own. And okay. that was a big game change for us. So what I would say journaling about our relationship also was very helpful for me to see like why I was like trampling over Scott. And like, if someone didn't come in and fix this, like, you know, there wasn't going to be a 1992 Olympics for us.
0: Okay. Yeah. It seems like it allowed you to come out of, I mean, just like a regular human. I mean, just there's ego there. And obviously, you know, you want to be at the front, you want to, but I found at least with journaling, doesn't matter what the situation is, is that it gives us just like a micro moment to zoom out of that and come out of the noise and all the stuff that's happening right and then see actually what's happening especially if you have a long-standing practice like what you've got
1: well and i think jumping ahead you you know that you know i do think that you know you try to set questions in place that are the journaling habit like you know, mm. I'm I'm a, a big believer in that. You know, it was like, you know, what went well today? You know, what would you like to have done better? Um, you know, you have those kind of things. You know, um, what what seemed to be the points of tension? What seemed to, you know, the yeah, you learn those pretty early on. You know, and I think that's kind of part of the getting along part of a doubles canoe team you know in whitewater canoeing the doubles canoe it's not like rowing where a lot of times the team boats are assembled just a few weeks before the olympics and and you know this is a partnership like you're in the doubles of boat all the time you know year after year we paddle together for six years and um Yeah, I, there was, there was a lot to kind of put, put together there, but, um, I learned so much from it and that whole conditions and environment piece that I spoke about, that's always, you know, kind of my first go-to when talking, you know, in performance coaching and when, especially talking about team and culture is like, great. Like, where are the conversations happening? Like, are you walking into your colleague's, office door at, you know, five 30 in the afternoon when everyone's tired and run down and everyone just wants to get home. And you kind of want to now say, pop open that question. I want to talk about that meeting we just had. Like, that wasn't very cool of you, the way you did this and this. And it's like, Oh my gosh, like there's nothing wrong with like addressing this, but do you know how much more effective this would be if you had sent, you know, set the conditions in the environment for it? ahead of time let them know this conversation was coming and waited till the next morning after you know you've had a good night's rest gotten some food in the belly and you have time to digest what we're going to talk about you know this is why like we don't really have to always get into like I'm an introvert you're an extrovert therefore we need to talk this way or talk that way i just want to first focus on conditions and environment usually there's a lot to pull out of that
0: yeah yeah. Know the room, know the room, know the environment. Um, it's, it's, that's a good point. And it's something we can, again, like th- most of us live in just this fast paced society and, in an environment that if you, if you don't pull out of it, it's hard to do that. It's just like, oh, well, uh, no, I need to talk to this person now, you know, like X, ex- this massive list of things has to get done or whatever it is. But it's just, again, like, it, it reminds me of what I what I was picking up from from your book, Solemn, about just think like you said something recently too, like almost like harnessing the power of the of the river, and, and you talk a little bit about I think you know coming up against these big rocks, hmm. and you know there's like the human nature is like to go closer to the shore, and yeah. it seems a little bit calmer there, but it's it's a it's a fucking misery, you know, a horrible that ride. Kind of, Right, horrible ride, but we do that all the time in life in general, because we want to avoid those big, scary rocks and like the you know the the craziness of whatever the wh- whatever current's there right if you're resisting it
1: it it It's so counterintuitive because the rock is like this big pillar of stability in the in the middle of a movement of energy in the movement of what yes. is really life. And so you're like, "Oh, I want to steer clear of that big rock. It looks big and scary and it's 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 not moving, so I just want to stay away from it. I don't want to go anywhere near from it." So we hover on the shore just next to the shore where there's these shallow shoals and your boat is bumping over these rocks and it's so shallow you can't even get your paddle in the water. And it's just the and then you just have to step back and say, "Is this really the way I want to live?" And counterintuitively, what's so amazing about the rock is that not only is that where the deep, fast water is, but you know what typically happens. And this isn't just talking; like this is just hydrology right now. Water, the stream, the river stream, the river current will flow into a rock, and that's energy. And it will kind of pile up on the face of the rock for a moment. But it's energy, it doesn't know how to stop, it has to move. So often that energy will release almost a little faster, Right Mm. next to the side of the rock, where you'll actually find faster, deeper water to work with. And, you know, the big punchline to all of this is that behind the rock, because water can't pass through a fixed object, there's a pocket of water called an eddy. And the eddy is actually, it's a place where you can change directions, you can catch your breath, take a rest. And it's like you would never know the eddy is there until you pass the rock and then like once you do it and this is like why we feel so good when we've confronted hard things and we've taken on challenges or like why we feel relief after we've had a hard conversation and often we'll sort of say oh gosh that that went much better than i thought it would that's yeah. what passing the rock is all about you know and yet we keep somehow there's a voice in our head that's saying oh go near the shoals you know and it's like it's a horrible way to live life.
0: Yeah. So how do you help how do you help people get past that fear of the fast moving water and the rock? Yeah. So it's a lot of it is technique. So if I actually just sort of think
1: in river speak, uh, you know, paddling on hard whitewater, challenging rapids, you would think like if I want to get better at that, I should just go out in hard whitewater and practice that. Again, counterintuitively, What if you go on flat water just where there's no risk of injury, where you can practice perfect posture, perfect balance, perfect stroke technique, and you can perfect all the things you need to do on calm water. And a lot like lifting weights in the weight room, it's like lifting light weights that you can do over and over again so you can really build that muscle memory. So I'm always looking for like what are the small little things. So like a coaching client will come in and say, oh, I'm having a really hard time with difficult conversations with top leaders. And I'm like, great, so your brain wants to fix that by going directly to that. And I'm like, yeah, tell me about how conversations with your family's going, you know, or with the barista at Starbucks. Because funny enough, it's the same muscle that you're using if you practice, that's like your flat water. You find your flat water and you go and find a way to exercise the same kind of muscles that you would use in a much more consequential situation, but in a yeah. non-consequential situation. And the better that you get at sort of picking those out, finding your flat water, you give yourself some excellent technical space to practice.
0: Yeah, it's, uh, you know, as you are saying that, just the question that kind of comes to mind with even your example of, of the rocks and whatnot is just, uh, like what, like, what is the opposite action that I can take, you know, that is, is opposite to what I'm thinking is the like the default or the natural, oh, yeah, I want to paddle near the shore type thing. And, and I, I feel this, or the, the sport that I can relate to on this one is mountain biking, where, you know, you might be ripping down a, a, a mountain and you see these massive rocks again or rock gardens. And the, the impulse is to slow down and take that slower, which actually makes it a hell of a lot harder than yeah. going through that kind of stuff with momentum right but 100%. it's like that's the opposite natural reaction in, in in a way
1: by the way when it, you know i try this on you know something we talk about in canoeing that applies to mountain biking i i have a, a client here over here in this country who's avid mountain biker he's a technology leader but he's an avid mountain biker so like once i know someone has like a, a real passion like that i'm i've gotten really good at implementing what their activity sure. is into their work And I just said, like, tell me how this sounds. I I said, is it harder to bleed off speed that you already have? Or is it harder to pick up speed you don't yet have? And he goes, oh, it's much harder to find speed I don't yet have. I'm like, great the idea of energy, we should be finding ways to sort of align with the most amount of energy because it is easier to tap the brakes than it is to sort of accelerate. It takes a lot more energy to do. And that's an interesting mindset as well. But you know, a lot of it, it's not just, you don't get that speed from pedaling harder. You actually maintain that speed by like being bet on the bicycle, your balance, your steering, things that allow you to keep momentum, it's not really about pedaling harder or breaking harder. It's actually about how you manage and anticipate uh, changes and shifts in energy. And I think that relates really well between actually whitewater and mountain biking, but it relates to almost anything in life as well. Oh, for sure. Relationships, you know, raising kids, uh, entrepreneurship. I mean, it, it, it applies across so many disciplines.
0: That's fascinating. I, I and and if this ever happens, I'll be giving you a nice shout out on this. But what what comes to mind is is we'll see. I'm I'm writing more bonus chapters right now with for the book, uh, which should show up in the newsletter. And typically, the way this works is I'll study someone and whatnot, and then f- then figure out the practices that that link well. And and what comes to mind with what you're sharing here for us individually is to pick to think of whether that's a sport or an activity that you're really passionate about that gets your energy flowing and so forth and almost take the, like that energy conversation and then, okay, how can I apply how I think about mountain biking or snowboarding or in your case, you know, uh, on the river and how can I apply that philosophy, that energy, um, maintenance or efficiency to, X in life where I'm struggling, for example, and just like zooming out a bit, right? And and doing something you're probably or already have in practice in just in a different context. Uh,
1: well, you know, I, I think it's the last chapter of slalom. I tell this story okay. that we were on the bus going to the closing ceremonies of in in Barcelona. Uh, the 92 Olympics and the Bill Endicott asked me he said hey you're a gold medalist what are you going to do when you go home I'm like I want to speak you know and he's like, I've got a few things lined up and he goes great he goes can I give you some advice that I shared with Norm Bellingham who won a he someone he coached to a gold medal four years earlier in Flatwater canoeing for the United States and I said of course and he said well And he said, my experience is that the athletes go back to the US and they stand on a stage, they've got their uniform, they've got their medal. And for a few weeks, they can pretty much say anything. And people will just think that that's cool because you're standing up there with a gold medal. But he said, what I've noticed, he said, it's just human nature. It's not good or bad. It's just human nature for people after a few weeks to say, well, Joe, that's really great that you won a gold medal. But how does that help me? And then Bill Hmm. looked at me and he said, if you can answer that question, how your gold medal helps them, you'll speak about this as long as you want to speak about it. And so I'm so lucky. Like I got that lesson at 22 years old and I've never forgotten it. And I think actually solemn is largely a tribute to that but what it's also done is it's helped me to kind of do that with a lot of activities, you know, and it's like, um, Lindsay, you know, Lindsay Elizabeth and I were talking about this with ballroom dancing, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just love to know when, a, you know, when someone is really passionate about something and when Lindsay and I were doing a podcast and we were talking about ballroom dancing and the double's canoe, oh my gosh, you know, you talk about like the similarities between yeah. two people kind of doing a dance on the river with a canoe versus two people, in, you know, in a ballroom under the lights with judges. It's really cool to kind of find those connections and what you can take away and what you can learn and what you can apply. Because, you know, I think everything else is like, it. it just comes across as just so... I don't know, just a blank mark, and especially yeah. in a business realm, I, we at at Valor Performance, where I one of the places I do coaching, we work with doctors. Oh my gosh, like if we didn't talk like you and I are talking now, and we were just sort of you know relying <laughs> on med, med medical school to take care of this. Oh my gosh, it would be a disaster. <laughs> I mean, medical school is yeah. great, you know, for the sure. medical training, but there's none of this no one ever really teaches you about how to rest you know how to you know the emotional sides of being a doctor and the 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 mental game like they're not you know it's very yeah. tactical and they're very good at what they do but that's where this stuff comes in and i literally had a client i couldn't believe this one of the doctors we actually had a, a group this um, had a group of uh, medical students around him while he was uh, doing a heart surgery and he actually used a, he mentioned the coaching relationship with me and he used a canoeing analogy like while doing a heart surgery in front of like <laughs> medical students, I'm like I'm pulling my hair out. Like he lived, right? The guy, the yeah, patient yeah, lived, yeah. right?
0: Let's jump but to the end here. <laughs> I
1: love that that works. That they, that these these metaphors translate in a way that like it, and in that moment, not just while doing a heart surgery, but while teaching young medical students like a different way of thinking about doing the surgery. That to yeah. me is just is it it, that's why I love what I do.
0: Well, it just, what I love about it is it just pulls you out of, again, people are going to get so tired of me saying the same concept, but just the autopilot, but it's just, we're so in, in, in it all the time that if you, you, if you have this different example, then all of a sudden you're like, oh, okay. You can think just, you know, a couple degrees differently that can make all the difference. And if you have, if you, I, I, I know we're coming up on time. If you have a few more minutes. Yes. Um, okay, great. Because you went to the end. I want to go back to the start of your book. Because one of those beautiful examples that really resonated with me was uh, right at the beginning, which, which is the, the put-in yeah. uh, period. Which to me, as soon as I, and, and you can fill in the details, of course, in a minute. But when I was thinking of that concept, I was thinking of all the projects that we start. And often don't realize, you know, just how challenging it is just to get off the ground, essentially, and that's where we give up often, right? And we don't even get into the actual project. So, wh- why don't you explain what what, what the put in is uh, first and foremost, <laughs> and then f- provide any flavor around that?
1: Well, you know, um, what I love one of the things I love about canoeing is that, I mean, you know, no two rivers are the same. And there's a place where you have to find your way from wherever, you know, your car, you know, you that's, you know, there's no locker rooms or clubhouses. Yeah. You know, we, we were a culture of athletes, you know, we raced out of our cars, you know, we raced in rural lo- locations in the middle of nowhere, but we also ran rivers in these very rural lo- locations as well. And so, you know, you could get all, you know, the information you wanted about a river but knowing something about where you were starting and where you, you were planning to take out was really important, you know, and the story that I actually lead off in, in the book is that, um, there's a river down in North Georgia where it's at the bottom of a huge Canyon you know, and they, they actually built these nice steps. But, um, I just remember the first time, you know, I, I ran this river and, walking down all the steps and I just didn't really take into consideration like how weak my knees were going to be when I got to the bottom of carrying this kayak there. And some of it was nerves and just the, you know, going down. And I also, it, it it's something to consider, you know, it's not just getting on the river and going that happens sometimes, but usually, you know, especially if there's a Canyon involved and, Um, knowing something about the surroundings of your water is really important. And it requires you to really think about not just surviving it, but now you get on the water and you need to feel good. You know, like there's a hard rapid right in front of you. So like, you know, it's a wake up, you know, and we in on the river, we talk about lines and it, you you think about like drawing an imaginary line on the river that you're trying to hold to, like you sort of see the right okay. place in the river to paddle, you know, you might kind of cue off some rocks and some breaking waves and you'll see a horizon line and you're thinking about where you want to go in the timing of your stroke. And yet, you can see the line. It doesn't mean you're going to hold the line. You might get pushed offline and have to course correct to get back on or hopefully get back on. And so, yeah, the impact of just walking down to the river can have a profound impact on how your day starts. You know, you might be just so just, um, uh, off balance at the beginning, yeah. where you make a big mistake right off the bat and it's still like, and you're not getting off the river at that point. Like, yeah. it, it's like it's you restart from where you are, but that is also, you know, you take it one step at a time, but you have to think through these bigger pictures of what it means to perform on, on the river.
0: It makes me think of a, a couple things. And one, something I haven't thought about e- even in my own mountain biking, because um, there's, even on the river, like when we when we see the photos and the videos and stuff like that, that's covered. Typically it's like you're on the river, you're you're performing, you're there, but you haven't seen again that put in part for the most part. And um, like it's the same thing in business. It's like you get covered, all the hype is when you're achieving X or whatnot, but there's all of this pre-work that that's been done, right? It's like the classic overnight success part and i wonder because and here's where it relates to me at least for mountain biking you know when we go on these big trips and we're out for the day let's say and there's a there's a particular trail we want to get to and descend or whatever it is like you know it's not uncommon to have a 2 or 3 hour climb yeah and it's like i always forget about that and to your point we get to the top we usually have something to eat but you're you're pretty tired <laughs> at that point and then you got to hang on for dear life right to rip down and i wonder yeah, just in you speak, like changing my own mindset around. I'm going to train for the, the put in essentially, so that when I'm at the top, that I, I'm there. Like I already know I can do this part, but I'm putting in the effort in in the part that I know is going to deplete the reserve. Just even getting into the trail network.
1: It's so funny, Mark, as you say this, because like I would even back this up. I do think there are strategies to how we go up the mountain to sort of set ourselves up to be in a position to come down. I'm the chairlift. Yeah, well, the way the, the way <laughs> the my brain now. works actually <laughs> is that this actually gets into sort of why we do the morning routines that we do. The, whether it's journaling, whether yeah. it's yoga, sun salutation, some meditation, um, y- you know, whatever that looks like, you know, from person to person, I, like, I don't want to say like there's some magic in just isolating that one activity where I think is that it's, I call it, you're giving energy a job you know you're Mm. not deciding you're not waking up and going what am i going to do today like that's energy that could have been used more effectively on the climb that's going away because you didn't make a plan of what to do by the way this is classic jack grapple kind of stuff that we're talking about here energy management you know versus time management and attention management this is you know this is why Jim Lair and Jack Roppel came up with this exact idea, and why energy management beats time management, you know, every day yeah. of the week and twice on Sunday, is that when you give energy a job, you know, you're not all you. What you're really doing is ensuring that you're not wasting energy that could have gone to something because you didn't, you know, think it out. And I yeah. think that is just such an under rated part of the morning routine is that you know and i've heard people on this podcast talk about you know they choose to wear the same clothes every morning so they don't have to think about what color you know what their outfit is going to be you know along those lines that is a function of managing energy and i just sort of i always ask my clients like what their daily you know their morning routine looks like not because i have some idea for them to do I'm just trying to sort of understand like where they kind of either cracks or gaping holes are that energy is escaping out the window, energy that could be going towards feeling yeah. really good and dialed in on the downhill. And I, so I actually yeah. think it actually starts even before that. But I think if you do that, then you put your best self forward to sort of manage the uphill in a certain way, break that down into the way, you know, what's your nutrition plan going to look like? What's your cadence Mm going to look like? You know, how, how am I, when I see a friend take off up the mountain, how am I going to restrain myself and stick to my pace?
0: You've been there, have you? Right. So (laughs) then I
1: actually have the downhill that I want to have, that I really, to have the experience that I came here to have that is sort of that high performance level of thinking. And again, it's not like so special or grittier or harder or stronger. It's being more thoughtful about it and being more consistent about how you practice it.
0: Yeah, well, it's just being intentional. I love that Um, because I mean, I, I have my own morning routine and usually there's some intention setting involved, but I like that just subtle reframe or focus specifically on the energy piece and uh, i'm going to incorporate that in my own uh, flow last question for you joe just because i want to respect your time but on the on the routines front like what are some of your non-negotiables uh that you've got in any of your rituals whether it's morning or you know middle of the day or evening wind down like what really has worked for you over the last little while
1: yeah, well, I think that um, it is interesting. It's it's always evolving, and 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 you know, I think that's the cool part of it is that it's always evolving. So I live in the Spanish state of Catalonia, and I do have clients in Europe. So I do have morning coaching calls sometimes, but usually my mornings are pretty wide open. So I I am blessed to have a lot of time in the morning to be pretty structured about what I do having said that I'm really good about you know talking to people if all you know, the doctors if all they have is 5 minutes I'm really good at talking about what to do with five minutes because at the end of the day, you know, what we're really doing with the morning routine is honoring a mind-body connection. And that, you know, we're just Mm -hmm. letting the mind and body know that they're talking to each other and that, you know, we're trying to be a little bit more intentional about making a change. Whether you have five minutes or 90 minutes, to me, it really doesn't matter it's about sort of setting a stage of consistency. And that's why I think something magical can actually be done with just five minutes. But for me, um, you know, I, you know, I will just tell you kind of quickly, my morning routine does involve a little bit of mindfulness meditation. Um, it involves, um, some sun salutations, some yoga, some pushups. Uh, I do a, uh, a little creative exercise, uh, creativity exercise called idea listing, where I come up with 10 ideas around a particular topic. That's probably a little bit more time consuming because I never know what the ideas are going to be. They don't have to be practical or useful. Really just trying to exercise the uh, creative muscle there. And then I journal. And I, I wanted to talk a little bit about the journaling side because that's... Like one of my favorite parts about, you know, about this podcast is talking about, you know, is listening about other people's journaling habits and share a little bit about mine. Um, I, um, I write on paper, paper and pen. And I, uh, um, I started this when I was at a real low point in my life. and, And not so long ago, when just in my late 40s, I'm in my, I'm 53 now. 47 48 years old i weighed about 60 pounds more than i do now i was Mm -hmm. in a hard place i was um not happy i was irritable um i was just i just needed something to start and i kind of kept telling myself it's like oh you're my inner voice was like you're you're an olympic champion you know what to do and then the other voice would say well why aren't you doing something so one of the things that i actually did make sense to me sort of the first things first was that um I knew I didn't want to live like I lived when I was 22 years old. But I thought the training log was actually something that could transfer really well to this point in life. So I pulled sure. some questions out of that. And what that looks like today, I write my purpose. I, I wake up with a purpose every day. I write down, uh, and again, just I'm not being instructive here. I'm just sharing what I write. I write to enjoy the process of deep connection, creativity uh wealth, and health as a framework uh, to bring focus to what matters most, so that's per, you write right, that every day yeah, I write that down okay. e- 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 every day, and um you know and and I love that it it really the key it's a little bit wordy I'm a writer, but i what's really important to me in there is deep connection, creativity, health, and wealth, and deep yeah. as a modifier. It, the implication is is like when it comes to connection like i'm not trying to have a million followers like i'm trying to have a really nice converse intentional conversation with mark
0: like mm-hmm. that's
1: what i love doing yeah. at this stage of life everything is narrowed and simplified for me you know creativity the same health the same wealth the same by the way wealth is a new addition into the purpose statement you know this has kind of gets into my own sort of hang ups with money over the years and It's not about trying to get wealthy. It only, when I say deep wealth, you know what that means to me? Live within my means.
0: Sure. That
1: was the most powerful change that I made, you know, after being married. Day one, I downloaded that app. You know, you need a budget. It's been on my phone ever since. And I have lived within my means every day, you know, since day one of, you know, restarting this chapter of my life. And that was like four years ago. Been amazing. So I think even having that in there and having been able to write my purpose, I think especially for people in midlife, I think that is almost like a non-negotiable. Is like yeah. having that sense of waking up with purpose. That idea of balancing my inner self and outer self. That's what purpose does. And then mm-hmm. under that, I have a couple of what I call word maps, and um, I have one for Outlook, uh, one for coaching. Uh, one for um, energy and one for um, creativity, and they're just a few words under each one. I write those same words every day uh, for each of those, and um, so those kind of are almost like values and guideposts for how I sure. work. And then the journaling starts to get different, you know. After that, I have a a section I call T O M, which stands for top of mind, and that's just okay. my sort of space to put those top of mind thoughts the chance for me to be honest with myself about like how I'm feeling. Is there, is there fear there? Is there sadness there? Is there, um, angst? Is there, um, something to look forward to happiness, fun, enjoyment, risk, you know, that's the great point, you know, which to just write a few sentences or more. And then after that I write relationship focus, that's not just a list of people that I'm going to be talking to. That's a way of giving intention. Mark Champagne was on that uh, part of the journal this morning. Uh,
0: Um, Awesome.
1: And then the last part is gratitude for what am I grateful. And I've been doing this since my kind of my big change and that has been huge and that's it. And that's the framework. And, you know, I think we have a way of making this available to anyone that is listening. I, um, and, uh, we'll make that uh clear in the show notes i guess and whether they contact me or contact you we'll uh make the journaling framework available to anyone that wants it
0: well it's a beautiful it's a beautiful recipe and and i know you and i are are, are not trying to pr- provide specific prescriptions but you know to start or even play around with something like this I don't know, that, that kind of flow of, of what I hear part one being really, you know, reaffirming or putting out those affirmations and like priming your mind yeah. uh, back into something you've already thought about at one point, you know, to set, set up those words, to set up that purpose statement, there was obviously thought at one point um, to come up with that. And then then cleaning out all the mental debt and clutter that, you know, is gets sucked into our head through that top of mind section and then you know, closing that off with feeling good and firing up the that dopamine and serotonin hits through gratitude. I mean, that's that's big.
1: I, I you know, I I put in the in that notes section. You know, uh, when I share this with people, I'm like, the, it's just a framework, and and it really just takes about five minutes to do. And yeah. um, I, I do something in the evening as well, but and and I write about that in the framework, but. Uh, This is the whole thing is just like, it's about you making it your own. And I think what I'm always looking for is that, you know, if you feel, if you were to ask yourself, where do I think I'm giving energy away and energy is sort of escaping that could be applied to something I'd rather see it go to, Mm -hmm. that really becomes sort of that spirit of jack grapple magic where you give that energy a job so it knows what to do, where it's going, which is also, by the way, there's a lot of that same theory that the people who design that app, you need a budget. I think they say it's to give every dollar a job. When you Mm -hmm. know that that is sort of done in advance before you get paid, that makes living within your means so much easier. Well, the same goes for energy management as well. And when I was coaching athletes in canoeing, yeah, maybe I came across as being a stickler for warm up and morning routine and all these different things. I just sort of knew the worst case scenario would be to be at the Olympic trials with an athlete who is sitting on the shore 15 minutes before her run. And she turns to me and says, What should I be doing now? <laughs> that's the yeah. greatest fear you would yes. have as a coach because you know, you just sort of know what they're thinking about at that point And it's not good. You know, they're no. worrying about what they're not doing, not having a direction of what they do want to do. And I, it, yeah. it's not hard. These are not hard things. Like I don't think people should be turned off or scared or thinking high performance isn't for them. I, I, by the way, James clear, um, and I one of my favorite James Clearisms is consistency over intensity. Mm-hmm. I, I I just there is such yep. those are such beautiful words that he wrote in the book atomic habits. And um I think that is immensely helpful. And if there is I cannot think of more inviting words into the high performance world world than consistency over intensity.
0: Yeah, I agree. I agree. And it's, you know, that and I think like what really resonates with me is just the the, the point you made about even your flow and that journaling framework. We're talking, you know, five, 10 minutes and five, 10 minutes that have the power to dictate literally the next 24 hours of, of your day, including how well you sleep or not. Right. And it's like, that's, just taking that time to put, you know, put the plan, like you said, put that plan towards, uh, or put, put, put a plan towards your energy and, and your intentions and and what you want to do and how you want to show up and so forth just goes such a, such a long way. So Joe, I mean, we could obviously continue forever. Uh, that, that's pretty clear, but I I do want to respect your time and, and, uh, you know leave people with with some curiosity as well i'll i'll drop the link to your book which i i highly recommend um everyone go take a look solemn um as you can probably tell just through conversation there's just so many there are so many examples and parallels to your world of uh living on the river and performing at a high level while in those boats um, that we could apply in just so many so many different areas of life and, and and like we've been speaking about in this conversation those little subtle perspective shifts or the little example just you know one degree to the left or right can make all the difference so uh, pick that up I'll drop your LinkedIn and we'll I'll make sure we have some uh, either a link or uh, some way to get that that journaling framework to everyone listening uh, on the show today. So Joe, thank you for, for making the time. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for running a little bit, uh, past the, uh, the time that we scheduled for this. I appreciate that. And thanks for being you and just, you know, going through your own journey and the, and the restart chapter that you, you know, you touched on at the end of the show here, because, you know, here we are talking about beautiful practices and, um, you know, feeling in and, and at least for me, I mean, I'm leaving leaving this conversation with a huge smile and energized, uh, which I imagine many people on the other side of the the uh, the microphone are doing as well. So, thank you for that.
1: My pleasure. Let's do it again.
0: Absolutely.